You know, if you were to do a survey of the people of the on the streets of, let's say, South Lake or even Keller or Grapevine or whichever town you live in, and if you were to ask them one question on that survey, what do you think is man's greatest need? What do you think man's greatest need is? What is that without which he or she cannot live? You'd get responses such as, man's greatest need is money or material things. Or man's greatest need is education. Or man's greatest need is fulfilling physical desires, whether eating food or sexual desires. Or as we think of the social media, you might think someone will respond, man's greatest need is being affirmed for who they are, uh, whatever that might be. And yet as we see all of these supposed needs being fulfilled, what man finds at the end of the day is that what she has or he has received, uh, what he or she thought was their greatest need, was really something that eluded them when they had it, ultimately. What they thought was their greatest need when achieved left them wanting for more, panting for more. It left them unfulfilled. You know, late 19th and early 20th century Germany is a great example of this. It was a period in the history of the world when education was thought of as the greatest need of man. And yet all of the education in that, in, in that period of history, all of the education in the world did not stop Germany from electing a maniac dictator who would ultimately lead them into a disastrous war, a war that would al almost would have wiped out Germany itself. So education wasn't the greatest need. And the more we live, the more we realize that education or material blessings or physical needs, or, or even being affirmed are not our greatest needs. The Bible describes our condition as being lost. Without God, it describes us as people who are lost. We are slaves to our master's sin, and without the saving work of Jesus Christ, we are eternally lost. Our greatest need then, according to the Bible, is our salvation, is for a savior. It is for someone to save us. Recently we celebrated Christmas and one of the verses that stood out for me and every year I try to go deep into one verse. One verse that stood out for me this year was the message from the angel to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. He says to Joseph, she that is Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. In fact, Jesus himself would say, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, we come to our text today in Genesis 22, where we get a preview of the saving work of Jesus Christ. The actual work itself takes place in the New Testament, but we are given a window to that act in the testing of Abraham's faith. And so I've titled our lesson for today, The God Who Provides. The God Who Provides. And if I had to summarize the lesson or the chapter, I would do it in this way. The one who fears God is a faithful worshiper 
The one who fears God is a faithful worshiper and will, will, and will willingly submit and surrender to God. The one who fears God is a faithful worshiper and will willingly submit and surrender to God whatever he, that is God, asks, trusting in God's promises of provision and blessing. A trusting in God's promises of provision and blessing. Let's look at this chapter together then as we consider the God who provides. Verse 1, as we consider the God who tests. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. First of all, we consider the God who tests. Uh, this section begins by Moses telling us that the event he's about to describe takes place after what he calls as these things. Notice verse 1. So we ask and answer the question, what things? What happened in the earlier chapter? What happened in chapter 21? In chapter 21, we saw uh, the birth of Isaac recorded for us, a miraculous birth. Abraham was 100, uh, Sarah was 90, and God had promised them a child and God delivered on that promise. And so when the child grows and he is weaned, Abraham throws a party for his son. And either at this party or some event following immediately after, Sarah finds Ishmael mocking Isaac. And so she demands Abraham, of Abraham to drive Hagar, Ishmael's mother, and Ishmael away. Uh, that matter or this particular request from Sarah brings great distress to Abraham. And yet after receiving assurance from God uh, to listen to Sarah, Abraham does what Sarah wants. God not only visits with Abraham, he also visits with Hagar in the subsequent verses and assures her of the fact that he will make a great nation of Ishmael. The chapter also records for us Abraham's covenant with Abimelech, uh, the, the king. As Abimelech sees the wealth and the might of Abraham growing, he deems it wise to have an agreement with Abraham. And so that's what he does, and Abraham obliges and and the chapter ends with Abraham planting a tamarisk tree at a place called Beersheba, where he worships the Lord as the everlasting God, and he settles in the land. That's what we find in verse 34. And then after these things, verse 1 of chapter 22, we are told that God tests Abraham. Now this is not uh, the first test of Abraham's life. If you have followed Abraham's life so far, from chapter, at the end of chapter 11, chapter 12 onwards really, until now, there were some glaring failures in Abraham's life. Uh, there was this test in Egypt and in Gerar later on, and it was about what he should state about Sarah. Should I lie about Sarah, or should I confess that she is my wife and perhaps risk losing her? And what does he do? He lies. When there was a famine in the land and he had a decision to make, will 
Will he trust God or will he leave the promised land? And what does he do? He leaves the promised land to go to Egypt. And then there was this test of fatherhood. Would Abraham wait patiently on the Lord to fulfill his word? Or would he take matter into his own hands? And how does Abraham do in that test? We would say he flunked that one. Uh, but there were many successes as well. Uh, his first test was way back in chapter 12, where God asked him to leave his family and go to a new land. What does he do? He obeys. We can see he passed that test. Then there was this test with Lot, his nephew, in chapter 13. Do I let Lot have the first choice and trust God, or should I make the first choice? And what does he do? He chooses to trust God. And then in chapter 14, there was a test about material things. Because Abraham, you see, rescued the king of Sodom, uh, this king wanted to give Abraham large sums of money. And the test was, should I take this money, or do I trust God to supply all of my needs? What does Abraham do? He rejects the offer. Abraham passed that test. And then there was one in the immediately previous chapter. Can I let Hagar or Ishmael go and let the Lord take care of them? Or should I hold on to them? He is distressed, but after receiving instructions from the Lord, he lets them go. We can see he passed that test. And now we come to the test of tests, the final test. Uh, there is no test after this particular test, this final exam, if you will. While Abraham does not know this, you and I as readers are, as the audience, as the readers of this text, we are privy to the fact that this is actually a test. Now that's important to remember, and I'll, I'll remind you later on why that is important to remember. What is this test? Abraham, verse 1, here I am, he says. This is what I want you to do. Notice the progression and the intensity of the test Notice verse 2. Uh, I want you to take your son. I want you to take your only son. I want you to take the son whom you love. I want you to take Isaac. In, in other words, I know this is your son. I know this is your only son. I know this is the son that you love, but I want you to take him. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah, now, uh, Beersheba to Moriah was about 30 to some say 45 miles. And 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that this is exactly the place, may not be the same mountain, but exactly the area where Solomon built the first temple. Now, this was also the place that the Lord had appeared to his father, King David. And here's what I want you to do, Abraham I want you to offer your son, your only son the one whom you love, and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I will tell you. Now, what is a burnt offering? Uh, if you were to read Leviticus chapter 1, it will tell you that a burnt offering is a, is a special kind of a sacrificial offering when an entire animal is burnt on an altar as an offering to God. All the stipulations and regulations that come along with that are mentioned in Leviticus 1. But what does burnt offering symbolize? Well, the burnt offering symbolizes complete dedication and complete consecration to God. 
Offering an entire animal represented giving oneself entirely to God. Abraham, I want you to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. I want you to show me that you are wholly and completely dedicated and committed to me. Abraham, I want to see your faith in action. Now, what is Abraham's response? Now, if we did not know the God of the Bible, as he has revealed himself, this command is a little difficult to digest. Abraham was 75 when he responded to God's call, and then he moved to Canaan. He was 100 when Isaac was born to him. He's already waited a long time for having a child of his own, own, and now God is telling him to sacrifice Isaac? As you look closely at the text, there is no distress recorded in the text. There's no disappointment on Abraham's part. There's no arguing with God. Uh, there's no case made for why this command seems a bit out of character from the God that is portrayed in the rest of the Bible. There's none of that. What does Abraham do? Verse 3. He rose early in the morning, just like he did when he sent off Ishmael and Hagar in the earlier chapter in verse 14. He does the same thing. He rises up early in the morning. He saddles his donkey. He takes two of his young men with him. He also takes some wood for the burnt offering and he rises and goes to the place where God has told him to go. And after three days of travel, in verse 4, as he raises his eyes, he sees the place from a distance. He instructs in verse 5, the two young men that have come with him and Isaac, I want you to stay here with the donkey, he says, and Isaac and I are going to go over that mountain. We're going to go there and worship, and then we will return to you. Now, as you think of that text, you're probably saying, wait a minute, so we've traveled over 30 miles and we've come all the way to worship on an obscure mountain. And if you were to ask Abraham, why Abraham? Why did you do this? His answer would be, because God told me to do it. And that would be enough. Now the young men don't know this. Isaac doesn't know this, but only Abraham and you and I know that God has commanded him to sacrifice his only son. And so it's highly significant that Abraham says in verse 5 at the end that he says that we will worship and we will return to you. On what basis can he say that? Well, we need to consider the rest of the text before we can come back to answer this particular question. So he takes the word, he, takes, he lays it on his son, Isaac, and in his own hand, he carries a coal or something that will help him to fire up the offering. And then he takes a knife, verse 6. As you are listening to that, and Isaac is watching all of this, I'm sure he's a little surprised, he's bewildered. And so he asks in verse 7, Father, I see that you have uh, taken fire, we have the wood. And I heard you say to the men back down there that we're going to go back, go worship, and we're going to come back to them. And so if we are going to worship, where is the animal? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And to that question, which may seem simple on the surface, we get an answer that is profound, and it introduces us to a God who provides. Notice verse 8. Where is the lamb, Father? 
God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. They finally come to the place in verse 9 about which God had instructed to them. And Abraham builds an altar, verse 9. Now, so far in his life, Abraham has built many altars. We've seen two of them in chapter 12, two in chapter 13. And so this would be the fifth time that he builds an altar. But as he builds this altar, this time it's different. It's not an animal that is being sacrificed. What is he being asked to sacrifice? He's been asked to sacrifice his, his son, his only son, the one that he loves. And so he builds this altar, arranges the wood, binds his son Isaac and lays him on the altar on, the, on top of the wood. You can't help but think what Isaac is wondering here. As some commentators have suggested that Abraham may have placed Isaac in such a way that he would not see Abraham and what he was about to do. That's certainly possible, but it's still a conjecture at this stage, an opinion based on incomplete information. And what does Abraham do? Notice verse 10. Abraham stretches out his hand as he takes the knife to slay his son. What a somber moment this is. Uh, this is the pinnacle, the height of all the tests that Abraham would have in his life. And it doesn't get bigger than this. I wonder, for those of us who are parents here, what would it, how would it impact us if God were to ask us to give up one of our sons or daughters? But there are some lessons here as we think and reflect on these first 10 verses. What are some lessons that we can draw from here? First of all, Abraham's faith actually prompts us to examine our own faith. It prompts us to ask ourselves, what is my response to the tests of my own life? It's, it's highly unlikely that God is going to ask you to do this or ask me to do this. And you have to ask yourself, what is my response to the tests that God introduces in my own life? Now, just as a side note, this is a descriptive event. It's describing what happened in the life of Abraham. It's not saying that this is what God is calling you to do, but the, the test actually forces us into a corner to test our own walk with the Lord. And it forces us to ask ourselves, do I see the joyful times and the testing times as coming from the gracious hands of a loving father? God may not be testing you right now, but his desire for you to, is to see you be conformed to the image of his son. Perhaps some of you are being tested even, even right now. And so Abraham's test really examine, uh, prompts us to examine our own faith. Do I see the tests in my own life as something that are under the sovereign control of our great God? Not only that, secondly, Abraham's faith challenges us to be obedient. Abraham's faith challenges us to be obedient. Notice a few things about Abraham's response. Notice there is an immediate obedience. Verse 2, he is issued the command from God about what he must do. And then verse 3, we see an immediate response from Abraham. And that response is one of obedience. There's no uh, discussion. There's no delay. We tell our children 
regularly delayed obedience is no obedience at all. There is an immediate obedience that we find in Abraham. And so Abraham's faith challenges us to be obedient ourselves. But thirdly, Abraham's faith displays a settled confidence in the character of God. In all of the ten verses that we have looked at so far, uh, there is not even a hint of distress on Abraham's part. Uh, No complaining, uh, no whining, no fretting, no feelings of distraught. He's not unsettled at all. You see it in his uh, in his demeanor. You, you see it in his actions. You see it in his planning of the whole process. You see it in his words to the two young men. You see it in his in his response to Isaac. There is a settled confidence in the character of God. Where is the lamb, Father? God will provide for Himself a lamb. God will take care of that son. He has called me to obey him. I do not know how he will work out the details of that. But I know this God. I know the character of this God. And I know that he will provide. You don't have to turn there. But in the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11 verse 17. This is what is recorded for us. The writer says, by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. From which he also received him back as a type. Abraham displays a settled confidence in the character of God. He has already seen his son Isaac been raised from a dead womb before. And he trusts this God. Abraham not only had confidence that God is a God who provides, he's also confident that the same God who made Adam from the earth and breathed into him life is fully able to bring people back from the dead. If he's able to give life, he is certainly able to bring back people to life. What gave Abraham confidence in the character of God? How can you have this settled confidence in the character of God? Well, Abraham knew his God. Daniel eleven thirty two. Daniel writes, But the people who know their God will display strength and action. Can it be said of your faith and my faith that it, our faith displays a settled confidence in the character of God? There's nothing that shakes us when that is true of you and me. Those who know their God will do great exploits, says God's word. Abraham's settled confidence is in the very character of God because he knows this God. I don't know what tests, what difficulties, what challenges you all are going through in particular. I know some of you, but the confidence will come only when we have convictions. And our convictions will come when they're rooted in the very word and the character of God. Abraham's faith displayed then a settled confidence in the very character of God. First of all, then, we see a God who tests. But secondly, notice verse 11 to verse 14, the God who provides But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So as Abraham is about to put that knife into his son to kill him, an angel of the Lord calls him, and this time there is a sense of urgency to his calling. And who is this angel of the Lord? He's at least a being that represents God. We can even make a strong case that this is the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, which is to say an appearance of Christ before the physical birth of Christ in the, uh, as a second person, uh, things that relate to Christmas, the incarnation of, of God. And this would be a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ. You know, initially in verse 22, Abraham is only called once and he responds. And now he is called twice. And he responds as we see a sense of urgency in the calling. And what is Abraham's response? It's the same. Here I am. What a relief that call must have been to him to hear that. Notice that his response is the same. We see in Abraham an example of a humble servant. A one who responds both to the difficult tasks that he has been assigned and to the joyful tasks, uh, both to the ones that bring him joy and the ones that are difficult in nature, his response is the same. Here I am. Our Lord would say in Luke 17, verse 10, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say that we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. And so the angel instructs Abraham not to stretch his hand against Isaac, and just in case that is not clear, he tells Abraham to do nothing to Isaac. Verse 12. For now I know, he says, that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And it's at this moment the next verse tells us that Abraham raises his eyes, and there for the first time, you know, he raised his eyes for the first time to look at the place of the sacrifice. And now he looks, raises his eyes, and sees the animal that would be Sacrifice. He sees a ram that is caught in the thicket by his horns. He takes the ram and then he offers him up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And very appropriately, Abraham calls the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Moses adds a declaration on his part as he says, even to this day it is known as the mount of the Lord that it will be provided. You know, as we think of Abraham's tests, I think it's helpful to stop here and ask, why, why was Abraham's faith tested? I mean, did God not know how Abraham would respond? Does it not say in verse 12, now I know that you fear God? Of course God knew how he would respond. He knows everything. He's the omniscient God. The Bible declares that God's eyes run everywhere. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching over the evil and the good. So he knows every, everyone. He knows everybody. He searches all hearts and observes everyone's ways. He knows everything about everything and everybody all the time. Someone has said he knows the future 
no less than the past and the present, and all possible events that never happen, no less than the actual events that do. He knows all, as I've said in the past, permutation of combinations of the actions we would have taken and what that would have resulted in. He knows everything. Now, if that is the level and extent of his knowledge, he certainly knew that Abraham's response and what it was going to be. And so we ask ourselves, why was Abraham's faith tested? As we think of that, one of the first things that we see is Abraham's faith was tested, not so that God would find out, but that Abraham would himself know the depth of his willingness to obey God. Uh, that Abraham would, would see the genuineness of his own faith. It was for him to know and understand uh, the authenticity, the genuineness of his faith. And Abraham's willingness to obey demonstrated, that is, it made clear that it was not grounded in the blessings that God had promised him. In, in other words, Abraham was not responding obediently because of the blessings that he had received from God, but it was grounded in God himself. Uh, this is faith in action. Uh, this is the kind of faith that James talks about. It's the faith, and genuine faith is faith that works. This was faith on display. And so to show Abraham the genuineness of his own faith, but Abraham's faith also shows to us God's heart. You know, many look at this and say, how is this God different from the other gods that existed at that time that were demanding child sacrifice? Well, the text tells us, as readers from the beginning, and this is where I'll remind you, that we are privy to what God is doing in Abraham's life as he is testing his, his faith. And so in advance, we recognize that that was not God's intention to ask for child sacrifice. Not only do we know that this was a test, we also know that God ultimately was himself the one who stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son. And so what it shows is that God desires a genuine and a heartfelt, authentic faith rather than a ritual. He's not interested in some external acts or actions. He's more interested in your heart. He's not impressed with all the 10 different places that we serve, it is important to serve as we learned even last week. He's more interested in where your heart is. And as Sunny, Sunny reminded us last week, the intention of your heart, where your heart is, is far more important. God is interested in your heart. He's not impressed with your external actions. And so Abraham's test actually shows us that God is interested in our heart. Not only that, Abraham's faith was tested to prove that God is indeed the one who provides. You know, Abraham had said that God will provide for himself a, a lamb, a, a prophecy that has immediate implications because God did indeed provide an animal as a substitute, not a lamb, but a ram, and that ram took the place of Isaac. God provided an animal as a substitute God did not provide a lamb because the lamb would one day be provided. And on that day, not only will that lamb act as a substitute for Isaac, but for the entire world. Why don't you turn with me to John chapter 1 and notice verse 29. 
John chapter 1, verse 29. Perhaps many of you know this verse already. It's an affirmation from John the Baptist about the identity of Jesus Christ. The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This text is recorded for us to show that we have a God. The God of the Bible is the one who provides. But the fourth one is one that ties all of this in. It is to foreshadow, it is to give us a glimpse of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. He is the lamb, as we read, that takes away the sin of the world. You know, on that day, on Mount Moriah, Abraham removed the knife from its sheath and fully intended to bring it down to kill his son, his only son, the one whom he loved, Isaac. But this father's hand was stopped on that day, and a ram was provided in the place of Isaac. But after almost 2,000 years, and almost in the same place, we find another incident, another son, the only son, the one who was loved, not by any human being, but by God himself. He too carried wood on his back, just as Isaac. He too was the sacrifice, and his sacrifice was also on a hill, the hill of Calvary. He too was placed on the altar of sacrifice, and this time the hand of the father would not stop the slaying of his son. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 about Jesus Christ, he says, he's the one who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. And on that hill, that day in Mount Moriah, God provided for Abraham. Uh, but that event in Genesis 22 points us to a greater event. When a hill, on a hill not far away from there, God provided a sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, one that will bring an end to the very sacrificial system that existed for hundreds of years. And his sacrifice, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a sufficient one. No more sacrifices needed. God had made a provision for man's greatest need. And he did that by sending his own son. He loved us and he gave himself up for us. And one of the interesting things about this chapter also is as we, as we look at the book of Genesis, you know, there's always an importance to the first, whenever a word is mentioned for the first time. There are two words mentioned in this chapter for the first time. And the first word is the word love in verse two. I take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Uh, that word occurs here for the first time in the scriptures. And then there is another word, and that word is mentioned in verse 18, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That word is obey. Uh, obey 
and love come together for the first time in the same chapter. What a great reality that points us to as we see love and obedience displayed for us on the cross of Calvary. Isn't it Paul who writes in Romans 5, he says, but God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then the verse that I love to quote, perhaps a favorite among also you, some, many of you, John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so, as we look at this chapter, why was Abraham's faith tested? It's to foreshadow the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through his death, his resurrection, we have been given life. No more sacrifices needed. That brings us to the third point here, and that's verse 15 to verse 19. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, notice your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. We see thirdly, the God who reaffirms his covenant. The angel of the Lord calls him a second time, as we noted in verse 15, and he says, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Why does he swear by himself? Because there's no one greater than him. And he tells him, because you've done this, that is, you've not withheld your son, your only son, I'm going to greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars in the heavens and as the sand in the sea. And not only will I bless you, I will make sure that your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. That means you will defeat the greatest enemy that is out there. And that is the seed that comes from you, the promised seed. He will overcome the enemies and through that victory, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's very few of us, I don't know the background of each one of you, but most of us here are blessed because of what that seed did on that cross of Calvary 2,000 years back. And so through that seed, the seed of Abraham, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation will be accomplished, it will be available for anyone who repents of their sins and believes in him as the only hope. In Galatians 3.16, Paul writes, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Why? Because you've obeyed my voice. You've shown that your faith is genuine. Your faith is seen in your works. Your faith, Abraham, works. That is the end of Abraham's test, a reaffirmation of the covenant, a, a reconfirmation of Abraham's faith. It is tested and it is found to be genuine. And that brings us to the last section in this passage. As you read that section, you initially wonder why it is there, but let's read it together. 
and see what the connection is. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, and Kemuel, the father of Aram, and Hesed, and Hazo, and Peldash, and Zidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Ruma, also bore Theba and Gaham, and Tahash and Maka. And so we have here the descendants of Abraham's brother mentioned. We're told that Milcah bore children to his brother Nahor, eight in total. And then his concubine, verse 24, we're told, bore also four sons. So 12 sons in total for Nahor. But it's not for Nahor that we are told this particular uh, this genealogy is recorded. This genealogy is recorded for what is mentioned in verse 23. It says, Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Isaac himself was brought from the dead that day. Not only was he brought dead womb, but he was also brought forth from almost dying as a sacrifice. And now, as Abraham has passed this test, it's now time to move to the next generation. And that's why we have the genealogy there. We're told about who will carry forward this genealogy, and that is Rebecca. In all of the sons that are mentioned, there's a granddaughter that is mentioned here too. And when we come back to the text, willing next time, we will look at chapter 23 as we consider and, and read about Sarah and then about Rebecca. And as we think of the God who provides, we see the God who continues his covenant. What, what are some things that we can learn from here? Well, firstly, and most importantly, we see God provides for our greatest need, that is our salvation. He has provided for your salvation and mine. Our greatest need, it's not matter, it's not being affirmed, uh, it's, it's not a, none of those things. But it is that our relationship with the Holy God is broken. And he himself takes the initiative of sending his son. Our greatest need is for a savior and God provides us for, provides him to, to us. As we think of this, many of us here are believers. God's provision to us in Christ Jesus. And we ask does God also care for me once I am in him? And Paul interestingly uses a very similar phrase. Turn with me to Romans 8 verse 31. Verse 31, Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Notice verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Uh, if he has given us Christ, what Paul is reminding to us is that God also will provide for all of our needs. And that is what this important chapter conveys to us. It, it reveals to us a God who 
provides. A God who has provided for our salvation is also the same God who provides for all our needs. I don't know what your needs are, but we can rest in the fact that God knows what those are. And God has a that he will provide for all our needs. What a great God we have. Let me close our time in a word of prayer as we reflect on some questions in the text. Father, thank you for these wonderful reminders from your word. We think of Abraham's faith and it being tested and we ask ourselves, do I really have the courage? Is my courage really built on my convictions? Is my faith truly grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if it is, then it would be true of us as well that we are men and women, not only of convictions, but we act on those convictions and we act with courage. But I'm thinking of so many here who are going through some difficult, difficult times. I thank you for the reminder from your word that you've not only provided for their salvation, their most important need, but everything and anything that they need to get through this difficult circumstance is provided by you already. And so I commit this week into your hands. I pray that you would guide us, you would remind us of these truths. May we live with a settled confidence in your very character, knowing that you know us, that you love us, and that you've given us everything that we need already. As we reflect on the lesson, we pray that you would guide the conversations there. We pray that your name would be exalted through it all. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.